the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. Of Welcome, and thanks for once again tuning into this brand new episode of Sake on Air, the world's very first podcast dedicated to in expanding the dialogue surrounding Japan's iconic beverages of sake and shochu. This show is made possible with the fantastic support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and broadcast whenever possible from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center, which is located in the heart of Tokyo. My name is Justin Potts, one of the regular hosts here on the show. And this week, we have another special guest uh, who I'm very excited to have on the show. I've been hoping to get her on the show for quite some time. And this week in particular, we have actually a great reason to be welcoming her to the show. Uh, it's Ms. Arlene Lyons. Uh, Arlene is a professional translator and interpreter focusing primarily in the world of sake. Uh, she shares those services uh, through her business taste translation uh, she also operates discover sake uh, out of uh, switzerland where she shares uh, uh, education and holds a range of formal and formal tasting experiences and on top of that she's got a whole bunch of sake t-shirts which i had no idea uh, was going on if you go to saketeas.com there's a whole bunch of really fantastic sake t-shirts that um, she's been stocking up and sharing with the world for those that are lucky enough to discover those as well. Uh, I've known Arlene for some time. Uh, we've met in Japan more than a handful of times, and I've had the pleasure of knowing her and working with her um, on several occasions uh, when it came to taking important information uh, about sake and trying to figure out how to get that um, out into the world in a way that was clear and tangible and uh, meaningful, and she's always been a fantastic uh, supporter and collaborator. And this week, um, we're particularly excited to have her on the show because she's going to, uh, going down the road, be sharing some information with us uh, here at Sake on Air and through Sake on Air, uh, putting some of her uh, knowledge and skills to work in, uh, in sharing uh, the written word um, and some thoughts and feelings and research um, very close to her heart and to her and to her work uh, surrounding sake. And so we're really, really excited to uh, have Arlene here joining us on the show. Arlene, good afternoon. Thank you so much, Justin. It's lovely to be here. Lovely to have you on here. It's um, It's been a long time coming. And as I mentioned uh, here at the top of the show and to our listeners, um, you will be having uh, a regular article uh, coming out uh, with us here at Sake on Air, a uh, monthly article looking at different topics, looking at different themes, uh, which we can we can talk about, we can delve into. Maybe we'll come back toward the end of the show and we can um, talk a little bit about the first article that is uh, heading out. Probably by the time this is out, we'll be out into the world, um, but we can sort of touch upon that as well. Um, but today, I said, Arlene, your knowledge and experience in the world of sake is deep and vast. Um, I've always enjoyed working with you because not only do you have a fantastic core understanding of the world of sake um, from not not just knowledge and experience, but also the technical standpoint, you, um, I think the background, your, your education and the time 
that you have put in into educating not just yourself, not just about sake, but the things in the uh, on the periphery um, or that are central to uh, understanding the nature of sake um, are things that have really put you in a place of being very, very well informed. Um, and so then when you're in a position to have to translate, to have to interpret, to have to interpret, um, to have to take a chunk of information and distill that down um, into something um, that is digestible and useful um, for the listener or for the reader, I, I just feel like your work is a great reflection of, of that knowledge base and the time um, that you've put in. Um, and so, there are a million things we could talk about, about, you know, sake experiences or different trips to Japan and all those different things. And I do want to hear a little bit about um, your personal experience, but I also wanted learning about sake. A lot of people want to learn more about sake and they always ask, where should I start or, you know, where should I go to or how should I learn? And I, I kind of today with you, I'd also like to sort of just examine the ongoing learning process, sort of the process of education and sort of what it means to sort of take information and translate that um, and localize that and sort of talk about that. Because I think that I think the process in and of itself, I, I have a feeling has been a fantastic learning tool for you as well, too. So um, I'd love to sort of dig into that as well. Um, to get started here, uh, however, um, why don't you first just take a minute, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background uh, that led you uh, originally to Japan and to sake. So I definitely didn't start off with any connection to Japan. Like my family are Irish and um, my father worked for the Department of Foreign Affairs. So he was a diplomat. And so they spent a lot of their time abroad. And so I spent quite a lot of my childhood in, in other countries, but they never went anywhere outside of Europe and that's not true they, they spent they spent four years in Iran but um that was that was that was it and so my first connection with Japan actually came through the times that they lived in France so they were they lived in Paris when I was between about eight and 12 years old and so I like went to school there and like watch French kids tv and so on and then they were back in Paris when I was between undergraduate and postgraduates and so I was back in Dublin full time studying and I went over to spend the summer with them and obviously university student in the summer, nothing to do, end up watching TV. <laughs> and um, it was I ended up seeing the same kids TV programs that I remembered from when I was a kid. And I was just like, this is really odd. Like there's they're they're all animated, but like there's two completely different animation styles. And. So some of them were, were were French or Belgian or Canadian, and a lot of them were Japanese anime. Yeah. And they had been dubbed, and the opening and ending themes had been redone and sung by the, 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 the children's TV presenter who worked on that particular show. And I had no idea they weren't French. Yeah. And I love the art style, and France has always been obsessed with Japan. And at the time, there was a huge craze for, for the anime and the manga, and I could just go to places in Paris and buy art books and comics. And I very, very foolishly tried to teach myself Japanese from Dragon Ball. Do not do that. <laughs> Most irregular speech patterns you'll ever yeah. find. <laughs> That's what I think. I, I, a lot of people ask me, what, you know, what should I read when I'm trying to learn Japanese? And I, I always tell people to find something you're interested in, right? Because yes. as long as you put something you're interested in, it's, it, it, it'll the keep motivation. your attention, right? You yeah. have the motivation, you can work through it. 
that being said, the caveat to that is try to find something that's grounded a little bit in reality. <laughs> yes, because this was not. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah, three quarters of the things you're learning are just not just not useful. When I, when I did finally go to Japan, the teacher was like, like, why do you know the Japanese for self-destruct? I could just... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh... Exactly. <laughs> and so I, I I then really got interested in Japanese. And when I was I was studying philosophy at postgraduate level, and but I started taking Japanese language lessons around that time, just like part-time in the evenings. And I carried on doing that. And then eventually in 2000, no, in 1998, I applied for the JET program. Okay. which is run by the Japanese Ministries of Education and Foreign Affairs. And it brings native English speakers over to Japan and places them in Japanese uh, high schools or uh, boards of education. And they work with the, the English teachers in schools to teach pronunciation and culture and so on. And uh, on your application form, you're allowed to say, like, do you, is there any particular you want to go? And I said, oh, I want to go to Kyoto, because Kyoto... <laughs> And eventually I got the acceptance letter, I got in, and my father had bought an enormous map of Japan, the biggest one he could find in Dublin. And we're like, okay, it's not Kyoto, um, it's Gifu Prefecture. And I was like, okay, and Enna? Enna? So I was like, we found Enna. And then nothing else. Everything else was below the level of this giant map that my that my dad had found. Yeah. And when I went out there, it's just like, yes, you get Enna, which is on the main JR line, kind of running from from Tokyo um, west to Nagoya, and then you have to change onto <laughs> this tiny one man car private line, um, which runs less than once an hour and is taken only by you, school children, and the elderly. And so that was a huge shock. I'd never lived in the countryside before. <laughs> so it's like finding frogs in your bathroom and this kind of thing. But it was a godsend looking back on it because there were precisely five people who spoke English within a range of many, many kilometers. The other three foreigners who were who were teaching in the area and then two people at the school. And that was it. Yeah. I couldn't go to the bank, I couldn't go to the post office, let alone the doctor or anything like that without learning Japanese. And so I got a really solid grounding in really basic Japanese. And I just fell in love with the people because they're so hospitable, they're so kind, so welcoming. And I, I kind of only did one year there and then I went back to the UK and I immediately started saving up to go back and this time to go back and study full-time at a language school, which I did in 2002, 2003. And then after I came back from that, I was just like, okay, I need to find a job that uses Japanese. Otherwise I will lose everything. Yeah, I'd see this happen with French and, and my French, cause I learned it very, very long ago. It's I've still got a certain amount, but it is much worse than it was. And so I went, I found a job in a translation company. And so I was working as a project manager and I was like, okay, but I, I will have opportunities to use the Japanese. And I didn't. And I moved to another company where I was working with their Japanese sister company. And there was only when there was some kind of total breakdown in communications that I would be asked to speak Japanese. Everything else yeah. was in English. And I was yeah. like, okay, this is not working. Yeah. And I did a master's part-time. I have Japanese language qualifications, but nobody knows what they are outside of Japan. <laughs> And um, so I took the master's as a nice shorthand of 
way of saying this is this is what I can do. And while I was studying, other students were just like, well, why don't you translate? And so they put me in touch with some of their clients. And I started out translating. And then after that, I was lucky enough to get a position at Nintendo Europe. Um, I worked on contract with them over between in 2008, 2009, just on and off. And that was a real baptism of fire into the into the kind of localization industry. And games translation is very, very demanding. There's a lot that you have to be on top of to to successfully communicate what is going on in the game. And then even doing very minor stuff like games that are already fully translated and released in the US that had to be brought over to the UK and launched in the UK market. And there was even like a whole list of stuff that you had to watch out for and change yeah, and run by native UK people to see like, does this make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Do you get this immediately? And so that was fantastic. And then in 2010, we'd been living, uh, myself and my partner, been living in the UK the whole time. And so in 2010, we moved to Switzerland um, for his work. And then after I came here, it was it was a while. It was about 2016 or so. And I was working for a small company in the UK, and they were asking me to do a lot of translation for wine. It was um, somebody in Japan who was taking a wine qualification. And I stayed with him all through. It would This started much earlier, maybe 2014 or so. And I followed him all the way through his studies, translated his thesis and, and his final project. And then he set up a wine shop where he was exporting Japanese wine. And then I get this translation request and I was just like, what is this? Mm -hmm. This makes no sense. And it wasn't wine, it was sake. Okay. And I was just like, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was just like, is he going to be sending more of this? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> huh. And so I started looking around for 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 anything that that I could get my hands on that would help me to because it's it's the huge misconception and one that I was absolutely guilty of myself is that once you speak the two languages you could translate and that's not I mean for for maybe stuff that you'd find in the daily newspaper maybe but when it comes to anything specialized you also have to know what you're talking about there's there's no other way to produce uh an accurate translation that when somebody who is a specialist like say if i'm coming out of japanese into english when an english specialist reads it it just makes sense yeah there's nothing weird about it yep and there's there's no terminology that's not right and so because i translate into english i look for courses in english because i would get the most value out of those instead of courses in, in french or something and i looked at wset and also SSI courses in London. And they were pretty neck and neck, but the SSI, you you had like several weeks break and then you had to go back and take the exam, which meant I would have to go to London twice. And WSET crammed it all into one week. So it's just like, right. <laughs> and so I did it in 2017. I was really lucky to get um, Natsuki Kikuya, who is the co-founder of the course as my tutor. And I had given my brother um, a, a little like sake tasting experience 
um, with Tengo Sake in the UK as a present, and he'd made friends with the owner, Oliver. And so we somehow got onto the list for the embassy reception, which is hosted every year for the winners of the trophy winners of the International Wine Challenge okay. in the sake division. And that's where I met the brewers for the first time, the, 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 the Toji and the Kuramoto and the brewery staff. And that was what changed it from being just something that I needed to know about for work into something that has consumed a good part of the last six plus years of my life. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. So when you started getting into, when you started getting inquiries about wine-related translation, did you already have an interest in wine or a background in wine or in brewing science or any of the things that were, say, re relevant to that field? Not particularly. Um, my, my family, however, are huge wine enthusiasts, especially my dad. And he lived and worked in in France even before he, he became a diplomat and ended up working there. And he has an absolutely encyclopedic knowledge of wine. Um, okay. he, and, he and his friends would like go around to each other's houses and like wrap the bottle in a napkin and make each other guess what it was. And, and they would guess it right most of the time. They, they, they were fantastic. And wine is, as another translator, I know said it's it's very well documented if if you want to know something about wine like when i was doing these translations i was given access to jansen's robinson's jansen's robinson's um, oxford companion to wine which is an amazing resource and there were cases where i kind of undo the translation was like i'm not entirely sure what the person is saying here but i was like this is a literal translation this is what i think they're saying this is a hit i got in the Oxford Companion, and you, you would get enough to to kind of make it so that the marker can make a decent attempt at at marking the paper. I'm, I'm still translating for that exam now. Okay. Um, but I did not have any specialist wine qualifications when okay. I was doing that. Okay. Okay. So I'm I'm curious then how in order to like you said you have to have and this is something that I think goes underappreciated by by people who are maybe who are not bilingual or who are not forced to engage at a high level in in multiple in multiple different languages. As you mentioned, the fact that just because you're capable of the language does not equate to you necessarily being able to communicate sufficiently uh, in the target language um, about a hyper-specific topic, whether it be sake or semiconductors or, you know, literature or whatever, you know, whatever it may be. Um, the So I imagine, like, you had to educate yourself and continue to educate yourself. The services that you promote um, and the, the translation services that you promote and offer are one specific to sake so you outline sake as as a category specifically but also things like life sciences and in similar um something in a similar field was that something that was a part of your background or was that something you went back into in order to further educate yourself on 
So when I started out as translator, because I'd been lucky enough to get this position at Nintendo Bureau, I started out translating games. Yeah. Um, but within about two or three years, I was with like working in-house for, for a major publisher like Nintendo was very, very different to working freelance. And it was very difficult to secure the same kind of work and to get the same kind of stability. And I'd always been quite fast. I hadn't done well with science at school, but I'd always been quite fascinated by biology and also genetics. And so in, must have been around 2012, I decided that I was going to study biology and life science and genetics both because I'm interested in it, yeah. but um, because I was going to shift my translation work into that sphere. And so I studied um, part-time distance learning um, over four years to get a BSc in biology. <clears throat> and um, after I, as, as I was finalizing that, I started taking on more and more life sciences work. And even if you say like life sciences medical, a lot of people end up specializing in, in quite a narrow field. And so what I mainly do is pharmaceuticals. So like production of pharmaceuticals, clinical trials of pharmaceuticals, packaging leaflets, safety information, um, standard operating procedures. So very, very technical yeah. material. And then some kind of biotechnology, cancer treatment, um, which, which comes more into the genetics end of it. And I've always been more of a technical detail-oriented person. So even working as a project manager, we did Lean Six Sigma, we did a lot of very structured approaches to what we were doing. And that's something that I think influences a lot of the other stuff I do. So even in sake, I do a lot of technical translation or very kind of scientific formal translation. And that's something that I know how to write in English as well. Yeah. Like I have written manuals in English. <laughs> and edited manuals and things like this and so that form of speaking is is very natural to me that form of writing and it's more when I get into the more aesthetic sensory aspects of sake is where I have to work a bit harder and especially because when you're translating they can be some very poetic and and enthusiastic and passionate um parts of the translation and I find that's much more of a challenge to to get right to communicate in the same way and it also is where the Jap the english that i use will deviate most from the japanese that has been used and that is a huge red flag for some clients they they do not like anything being different they want a literal translation and there you have to build up a certain amount of trust before they will let you give them an English translation, which is going to work in English in the same way as the Japanese original works in Japanese. Yeah. And so there's a huge education and, and trust component in that, which can which can take years. Absolutely. Like, unless you're working with people very intensively, it can take a long, long time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll see you brought up a couple a couple of interesting points there. So one, this interest in science and going back into that um, and doubling down sort of in that specialization that came before sake. So it was very serendipitous that you developed that background knowledge and developed experience in that writing style, in that context before sake came your way. 
so that was sort of a sort of a, a lucky happenstance, I guess, um, ha having done done that. So that it looks so much neater when I look back on it now. So it's like, oh yes. yeah, 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 yeah. It just looked like a very just natural progression, but it, it was that's that's beautiful. I love it. Um, and then you you pointed out something also I think really really important is that a lot of times people they assume that the technical translation is the more challenging version in in some respects and in some respects it is because it requires a high level of specialization and understanding of that material um, however the words on the page are very clear also in a certain sense there's not there's not a lot of deviation in terms of meaning right what's written is exactly what needs to be communicated in in most cases um however as you mentioned when talk when you're talking about say the sensory aspect or the experience of say tasting a wine or a sake or then communicating what you say the brewer or the sommelier or the um, person in charge of say that drinks program wants to convey um, about the experience of that beverage uh, there's it's much more creative in a way and it's and it's rooted in individual experience as well there's mm -hmm. and and so how to then take that and turn that into communication that is useful for the person who has to either read or listen to that is is another is another unique challenge um and i and i it's you know it's interesting you brought up the point of you know a lot of places originally really wanting a, a specific or a literal translation i remember um and this is still very often the case but i remember say for example looking at a lot of sake lists say at, at restaurants um and there might be 10 15 20 sake and even though all of those sake are different and unique the breadth of vocabulary used as descriptors across them are so incredibly similar you could have more or less just taken the the descriptions and and randomly slapped them in there interchangeably and if really but i mean that's that's an experience i it's something i still see quite often and it's not you know to anyone's fault but it's i think it's representative of the way in which um the experience or the sensory experience of of sake is perceived and communicated in japan versus how the level of expression that um maybe people are looking for outside of Japan when it comes to communicating um, sake or wine or or food or those things. I think there's a huge gap between um, how kind of professionals in, in the wine and sake industry are assessing. And I think it's, if you go to the National Research Institute of Brewing, they've got a lovely downloadable PDF, which is a, a gorgeous little basic mini textbook of sake, and um, we referred to that, I think, on the JSS Academy course earlier this year. And they give in in one of these in one of the chapters the marking paper for like the National New Sake Awards. Yeah. And it's just like, was it flawed? <laughs> if not, give it a mark out of three. 
and that's it there's not there's not the practice of like and, and it's it's gone so far in the west that like there's whole comedy sketches in, in the uk based on over the top wine descriptions sure um oh it smells like the wet saddle of a horse that just won the grand national or whatever yeah <laughs> and it's and there's this huge divide between the two and i was in that case as well quite fortunate that wset was the first course i chose to do because they ported their whole framework for talking about wine and analyzing wine to sake and so they give you a very organized structure for describing a sake in the same way that they would describe a wine. But that is completely absent. Like when I studied SSI, they're just like, well, consumers don't know very much. So we recommend that like you pick three words and just describe the sake in three words. And it's just like light, dry and floral or something. Yeah. And I was just like, I see what you mean. Yeah, and you you yeah. definitely have to meet the customer where they are to communicate with them, but kind of that's not necessary. Yeah, <laughs> what you want to yeah. do, but there's sure. a huge cultural gap there. There's, sure, there's no question about that. Absolutely, 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 and so I guess, and that's something that I I think comes with the ability I think to recognize that and appreciate that, and then to be able to not just take that language and change it but then to be able to to be able to say this might be a better way of going about communicating this and here's why i mean that takes that takes a good deal of exposure and experience and i guess we'll say education on on, on a certain level right whether it be through you know wsed or ssi or these different sorts of formal education um, or there, there's a lot to be learned outside of those spaces as well, too. Um, I'm curious, how do you go about educating yourself now? Because one thing I always love about your work is I feel like it it's always grounded in the reality of what the sake market is doing in Japan as well despite the fact that that's not your home base. I know that you go to Japan once or twice a year, you pay regular visits and you do that. Um, but how do you keep yourself educated and up to date uh, on changes in the world of sake in Japan so that the work that you do um, is reflective of um, what's actually what's actually happening and the changes that are going on? So back in... This would have been late 2017, after I'd, I'd, I'd kind of really gotten into sake, and I met a few people in the UK, um, so Tom and Lucy, who founded Kampai in London, um, Oliver Hilton Johnson, who runs Tango Sake, and a journalist called Anna Greenhouse, who, who used to do a lot of work in sake, I think she's doing one wine now. And I was saying to them, like, look, I want to do something. Um, I'm aware that not a lot of people know what sake is or, or are very intimidated by it. And I, I had a list of kind of suggestions. I kind of like, should I do a course or should I try and do this and that? And what they all picked up out of the suggestions I made was translating Japanese news articles about sake into English. And so this is where taste, taste translation came from. I started this project, I had just done a course by an American, um, he's kind of a marketing expert called, called Seth Godin, 
And he said, like, challenge yourself to do something once a day for 100 days. And it was, he was also trying to get you to stop being a perfectionist, which mm. I terribly sure. And it's just like, if you're going to go at that pace, you can't stop and go back and, and edit it 10 times. You have to keep moving. And so I was just like, okay, I challenge myself to do a sake article a day for 100 days. And usually, like, I would get some free time and I would do two or three articles. And I would, but I would post, like, for, for a year, I posted pretty much an article every single day. And I learned so much from doing that. And also kind of going through the masses of, of, of articles to select ones, I would still pick up on things that were happening, even if it's not that, even that wasn't the article I chose to translate. And then you just build up this kind of background. It was like, oh yeah, I've seen that before. I was like, oh yeah, that was Niigata. Like, oh yeah, that was this brewery. And you start making the connections. And it's once you've built that, that foundation and you start being able to link things together, that's where it takes off. And so John Cotter started his sake industry news, I think, end of 2019. And um, I was just like, damn. <laughs> <laughs> so for a while, we, we kind of like ended up covering the same stuff. And I was just like, right. And, and so I took a bit of a break and I thought like, okay, well, what, what, what am I going to do with this? Because also John's is a paid service and, and mine, I, I just did kind of because it benefited me as well as benefiting other people and so I then pivoted that away to concentrate less on news stories like I still scan them I still have a, a, like a, a news alert that comes in but I'm doing more things now like kind of I'll be researching something for a translation and I'll end up on the national tax agency site and there's something really interesting there or I'll end up following up a, a lead that leads me back to the National Research Institute of Brewing or something the GSS is doing or something Brewing Society of Japan is doing or something this this tiny biotechnology company nobody's heard about doing. Yeah. And these things don't make the news. But I still think they're really fascinating and they're worth knowing about. And so I'm kind of now moving the taste translation newsletter, the the news stories, into this space. So John and his team are doing an amazing job, like Julian and all the others. And they've really hit their stride now. And I really enjoy getting the newsletter. Yeah. And so they're covering the breaking news. And I was like, okay, that's covered. I'm going to do something else. And it was once I started building up connections in that space that I started working with places like the, the JSS, and this for our listeners, GSS is the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association. Shochu Makers Association, yes. Yeah. Who are kind of the umbrella organization who cover all the different brewers associations and all the different prefectures. And like almost, almost every brewery in Japan is, is a member. There's some just about, few yeah. Orange, but yeah. And that came, and I've always made a point of trying to meet people in person, which obviously hasn't been too easy for <laughs> the last few years, but particularly. I think it's a Japanese thing as well, that it's you feel like you haven't really met the person unless you've met them in person and you've got a feel for them. And so I did my best to go to Salon Yusake every year, um, the IWC events in London. And I actually met um, Utsunomiya, the director of the JSS, at the Salon Yusake. Yeah. 
where he was giving a presentation on like sensory components of sake and, and kanzake. And then once you get into that space and once people see that you know what you're doing, then a lot of stuff happens by referral. And so I now have people coming to me who I have no idea where they came from. <laughs> and they just say, like, oh, it was a referral. And, and they never make it clear who it was. But it's one of these things, like I've built up that kind of network of, of, of people who know me and who worked with me and who know what I can do. And then they start doing referrals. And then, again, the whole thing takes off. Sure. So I'd say... The amount of work I do in the sake space has been growing and growing over the last couple of years. And um, there are times when it's 50 50 um, pharmaceutical and sake. There's some enormous projects that I've taken on that I could just, I just like put on my out of office for like two or three <laughs> months. Yeah. And um, I know there's lots more stuff in the pipeline. Um, people who I've worked with before who are coming back to me with, with new projects. And so I'm really excited to see see where that's going to go. But I mean, it's it's not something that happened overnight. It's something that happened over many years. And like you say, I, with the courses I've done, with the background knowledge I have, with the the fact that I, I make the effort to put aside the the time and budget for going to these events, has has made a huge difference. Yeah, I bet. I bet. I bet. Like I said, having having that actual experience is it's just is so critical. Like I said, face to face on the ground, being able to get a real tangible feel for. I, I think Actually, like, me, since, me, since me, I'm not based people. in Japan, it's... yeah, absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Like I said it really is critical, and I think that yeah, as much as you know, so many things can be done online these days, actually setting aside the time, like you said, the time and the energy and, and then the, the funds in order to actually, you know, make make those um, make those opportunities happen or make it that those opportunities can happen, you know, um, is, is really, really important. As you mentioned, over time, through referrals, through experience, you get more requests to do sake-specific translation of probably varying nature, um, a number of different types of projects. Has Have the types of requests or the type of projects changed over the last five or six years? Have you noticed anything changing that you feel like is a reflection of possibly where the sake industry is going or a shift in values or sort of, or a shift in need um, on the, I guess, the end user side in terms of the types of information that people are actually seeking out or in need of now is compared to maybe what people were seeking out four or five, six years ago? Definitely. I think, I think we're in very interesting times when, when it comes to that. Um, so initially what I was seeing was um, a lot of translation was, was, and this is across every industry in Japan, a lot of translation being done by native Japanese speakers who had, kind of reasonable reasonable grasp of English but the sentence structure was never smooth and you would kind of read it and you'd have to think about it and go like oh that's what they mean and a lot of things that weren't localized which is kind of a technical term and it's just like if I talk about um some concept in Japanese mythology it's just like well I can't just translate that 
unless I know that the audience will know what it is, I have to come up with an equivalent. And this is something we, we used to do at Nintendo. If, if, if we got a, an America, a game we translated in the US talking about baseball, we would change it to cricket. <laughs> yeah, sure. Because <laughs> otherwise, like, nobody knows what you're talking about. And um, so there was a lot of that that was missing. And also a lot of the translation demand was being driven from the Japanese side. There were Japanese companies or organizations that wanted to communicate to the outside world. But it was very much like kind of, oh, look how international we are. It was very well-intentioned and often they put a lot of work into it, but it was very literal translation and they were presenting themselves in English in exactly the same way as they would present themselves in Japanese. And again, this comes back to that question of trust. Will they let the translator carry them away from that and, and make something more effective in English that, that creates the same effect in the English reader as the Japanese has created in the Japanese reader. And that's that's always been a problem in, in anything, any kind of translation. And so what I've been seeing over more recently has been more and more ambitious, more detailed, more extensive, and larger organizations getting involved. Um, so the JSS is obviously one, another one is the Broom Society of Japan and really going to lengths to translate and localize much larger and more in-depth information. So for example, the JSS put out a guide to pairing. I think that came out late last year and extremely detailed. And that was something that I worked on and because I, I have worked with them for, for several years and I've built up a decent amount of trust. I was just like, I think you need to drop this chapter and the foreword needs to go because like, there's no point in translating it. it, it it's so Japanese. Like I could translate it if you really wanted me to. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't, <laughs> no, the, the context of it doesn't necessarily mean a lot to the, to the reader, the person no. who's actually going to be, no. yeah. It's not and there's a whole section on on safety, food safety and hygiene, which is great. But I was just like, yeah, but internationally, there are established regulations that people use in bars and kitchens and restaurants. And this is not going to be relevant. And thankfully, kind of we're, we're at the stage where if I make these suggestions, they're, they're happy to consider them. And but the rest of the content was extremely in-depth going into like, big detail on on French cuisine and then its flavor profiles and how it can what kinds of sake it will match with and then the the work with the Brewing Society of Japan is also incredibly in-depth but from a technical scientific point of view and they've it's features the work of lots of of very experienced researchers and they take you through everything from like the legal aspects of sake the brewing process in extreme detail, um, analysis, storage, shipping, preservation, and there's like a tiny, tiny presentation of tasting, which I thought yeah. was really reflective of the Japanese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so there, and I think this is also reflected in things like Jim Ryan's book, um, Discovering Yamaguchi Sake, which came out at the beginning of this year. Nothing like that has ever come out in English before. Yeah. And I think it's a sign, and he went through a traditional publisher. He did not self-publish. And this traditional publisher decided that this was worth publishing. 
and you look at the rise of small craft breweries in the US. And I think people are kind of realizing that the level of interest is rising overseas. And again, like you've got this base of like people who are just like casually interested, like they might do a one day course. But then there's more and more and more of those people. And on top of those people are growing the people who will take the three day course. And on top of that are people who are going to try brewing sake themselves. And then on top of that are the people who would take this Brewing Society of Japan course and would love it and would appreciate it. Whereas I think if you go back a certain number of years, those people weren't there yet. Yeah. And when I was writing the article um, about, about wine and sake, I think it's it's can be very frustrating sometimes to look at the amount of effort that people put into promoting sake and then you don't see the payoff. Yeah, sure. And I think it is it is there, but it's very gradual. And it's only when you look back over a larger time frame, like the 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 WCT launching sake courses and kind of the the export figures, you realize it's happening mm. more slowly than you might like, but it's happening. Mm. Yeah. And I think that at some point, the, the level of interest from abroad is going to reach a point where the Brewing Society of Japan can launch ultra detailed courses and there's going to be an audience for it. Whereas before there wouldn't have been. Yeah. And I think you see it as well in courses like Sake Scholar, which are incredibly detailed on the regionality front. Uh, the JSA Sake Diploma, which is just an encyclopedia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And... Just, just the more and more advanced courses and then people going off in different directions like brewery experiences and chances to work in the brewery short term and things like this. And these are all things that I think there wouldn't have been an audience for um, even like say four or five years ago. And I'm sure. really I'm really interested to see where that goes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's, it's, it's like I said, it's very exciting times because you were sort of seeing that or in the midst of a of a of a very tangible transition, right? I think Where, so. Yeah, you know, and it's it's everybody's sort of waiting for the this tipping point, and I, I the domino like, to go, yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. It's it's everybody say it's it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. They've been saying it, like you said, for the last 15, 20 years. And I guess touching back to the the wine and sake article you're you're referencing, I think it's worth um, pointing out here now is sort of what we mentioned at the top of the episode is so now monthly, um, Arlene is going to you're going to be putting out um, an article um, with us here at Sake on Air, yay. Um, and the first one is looking at that relationship of um, what is it, what does it mean, and what is uh, the potential for leaning into wine in order to communicate um, the value of sake. And I won't get into it too much here. Oh, I'd love to, I'd love to direct our, our readers to um, to go and check that out. Um, but you know, as you said, there's a there's a large, I don't say a large, there's a significant number of people or demographic people that have invested heavily in that strategy and as there's while there's been growth um it's we're not looking at crazy exponential growth <laughs> you know it's it's been it's been very gradual and that's not to um dismiss the work or the quality of the work or the nature of the work but it's but when you take a step back and you look at where we're at it's you have to come to terms with where you're actually at right and so what does it mean to moving forward what what makes sense in terms of in terms of communication um both leaning into into wine and using um those 
not using working with those professionals um and 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 that community while also exploring you know other possibilities that might be um meaningful or or, or effective and then when you start doing that i said i think you start realizing that um there's a lot there are a lot of unexplored channels or underexplored channels that all of a sudden means there's a lot of, there are a lot of other ways of of communicating um both in terms of you know entertain entertainment or experiential as well as technical mm -hmm. and like you said i think these um larger organizations or these different organizations that are now more proactively saying we want to contribute to this um is little by little that i, I think that that growth of um and that expansion of quality um useful information is going to hopefully hopefully feed into more more different avenues through which we can we can communicate and share about these things um real quick it's, i, I think for kind some of those people yeah. as well it, uh, no go ahead so you want to i was saying i think as well that some of these these organizations have kind of gone like well is anybody interested in what we have to say yeah like we're super technical and yeah. we kind of serve the sake industry in japan and like are you sure people are interested? Yeah. And then you get to show them. So it's like, look, people are making sake outside of Japan. Yeah. There's there's a, there's one sake brew in Switzerland, and I've brought several small bottles of this sake to Japan. Yeah. I'm like, look. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they're fascinated by it. They're fascinated yeah. with how koji is being used outside of Japan, with how sake brewing is being done outside of Japan. And they're like, sure. actually, yeah, maybe there are people who, who want to hear from us, yeah. who would benefit from hearing from us. Yeah. And I think that's been a huge kind of realization for them as well <laughs> sure absolutely 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 and, and you know for me as well that's one thing that i just i've found is just the nature of the inquiries that i received over time a lot of it was hey is there anywhere where i can taste sake or is there anywhere i can learn how do i learn about sake or what's what's the best thing to pair with sake it, it was a lot of questions about how should I enjoy this thing? And is there a way that somebody can teach me how to enjoy this thing? And then uh, it felt like overnight, although it wasn't, it was very gradual. All of a sudden, the inquiries became much more detailed. And which to me signified that there was enough demand to where there needs to be more people that are specializing in sharing different kinds of information because there's another demographic graphic of people that were either part of the previous demographic that have continued down that path and are seeking more or it's people who are coming at it for a different reason with different intent with different goals um, that are trying to figure out how to how to engage in the world or the business or the brewing of sake in a, in a way that's um going to support their individual endeavors or you know the the sake related uh, endeavors at large and so it's 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 fascinating to watch um develop and evolve it's been very very interesting um arlene i don't want to take up too much more of your time here this morning but i want to more than anything i want, really want, I want to thank you for sharing um your yeah, experience you. and your knowledge and your expertise with us um real quick if you want to at the top of the show, I let people know where they could find more information about um, mm -hmm. yourself. Um, if people want to find more information about you or your work, where can people go um, to if they're seeking 
say, sake-related translation or localization uh, services, or if they're just looking for an awesome sake t-shirt, where can they where can they go to yeah. um, to find to find more information? So all of my actual translation, interpreting, booth support, um, representative work is all under Taste Translation. So that's taste-translation.com. And there's also a mailing list there where I post very occasional, like once a month, um, newsletters, which I've said are now not so much breaking news and more just kind of things that I find that I, that I think are interesting and worth knowing about. Um, for beginner level information, like if you want to refer a friend who, who want, who's a curious about sake, um, Discover Sake on Instagram. So that's all one word, Discover Sake. The website is discover-sake.com and that's where I host or where I organize sake tastings and workshops in Zurich in Switzerland. And then the t-shirts are on sakeetees, S-A-K-E-T-E-E-S.com. And um, I also take requests for that if anything has anything funny. And I every so often meet brewers and they say something really funny. And I was just like, right, that's going on a t-shirt. <laughs> No more than evidence-based drinker, which was which is yeah. Philip Harper. <laughs> yeah. That's great. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah, the I, other two candidates I have are Karakuchi Kesatsu. Nice. 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 And Hentai Kimoto. So <laughs> good. Good. All good. All good. We'll have to we'll have to, I can be no, we'll have to figure yeah. out how to well, I said, but no, well then we'll have to figure out how to how to how to communicate those. We'll have to somehow <laughs> like how do we how do we translate these in a way that it actually right we, yeah. we have to, what would be what would be the the translation or the localization of, yeah. of, of those expressions i mean that would really that would really drive um that really drive those home we put the japanese on the front the english in the back and then people will just be yeah it'll be a good, good example of the quality of of of, of your your skills yeah. and, could wear it with like the t-shirts relevant to very few there people. You yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Arlene, thank you so much uh, for joining oh, us. Oh, thank you. It was lovely to talk to you. And for our listeners, uh, as I said, probably while by the time you're listening to this, um, Arlene's first article for us uh, here at Sake on Air is probably online about this time. So I encourage you to pop over to the website over at Sake on Air and check that out. Um, and she will continue to be um, sharing information um, on a monthly basis, um, her thoughts and input and insight. So I, um, we're thrilled to have her uh, joining the team. And we're uh, very excited to be able to share uh, those insights with uh, our readers. Excellent. So Arlie, thank you very, very much. We'll talk to you again here soon. Thank you. And that does it for one more episode of Sake on Air. If you have any questions for us or questions for Arlie, you can reach out to us at questions at sakeonair.com or follow along with us uh, over on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at, at sakeonair. The show is brought to you with the wonderful support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and is a production by Potsuke Productions with editing work by Mr. Frank Walter. We will be back with more sake and shochu-related uh, inquiries and exploration in just a couple of weeks. But until then, come by.